is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. Back in March of 2020, I sat down with Thomas Kearns and had a wide-ranging conversation that covered topics as diverse as makerspaces in K-12 environments, design, architecture, assistive AI, machine learning for K-12, and so much more. At that point, the COVID-19 pandemic had definitely hit the United States, but cases were mostly in Washington State and New York City. In fact, Thomas and I had planned on meeting in person, but we were both debating whether that was safe or not. So that tells you exactly where we are in the beginning of the pandemic. Within a week, the pandemic was all too real, and we were all scrambling to figure out what to do in the Midwest. As I began focusing on having conversations with educators who were being impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic in places in the United States and in Europe, this episode got lost. Now it's September 2020, and the pandemic is far from over, but I've really been wanting to return to this episode and get it published. So I'm calling this the lost episode, even though this podcast has only been around for a year and a half. Thomas Kearns has had a fascinating career. As a trained architect and computer scientist, he's founded numerous companies, worked as a professor at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and currently is a digital innovation strategist at the architecture firm Perkins & Will. Thomas, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today. Nice to be here. So, I mean, there's so many things that you are involved with that are so interesting, but I was, you know, I'm looking at your CV, at your resume, your undergraduate studies were in architecture and your master's is in computer science with an emphasis on game programming. But I'm just curious, I'm always curious when I'm talking to people, like what in childhood and adolescence kind of led to that course of study? What drove that? And was that kind of a right angle for you when you entered college or did that kind of fit um, kind of the evolution of your childhood? Yeah, I mean, I, I, looking back on it, I think you can see uh, two really obvious uh, sort of origins. I grew up in the 80s, um, and uh, my first computer was a Commodore 64. Uh, when you had, uh, at that time, you know, software was uh, having a subscription to Byte magazine and, mm-hmm. you know, manually entering code from the back pages to have games or little applications. Uh, and so, I probably would have been about third grade. Um, and that was happening same time that I, like so many other architects, I'm into Legos and drawing and all of that kind of creative uh, generative stuff. Um, I was fortunate to go to a high school that had a really good industrial technology program. So I had mm-hmm. uh, drafting for four years in high school. Wow. Um, so I, I, kind of started the path towards becoming an architect when I entered into high school. Um, and uh, yeah, it just went, went from there. Nice. So 
what, what drew you to architecture specifically? I mean, I, I get that like the, some of the opportunities of like Lego and some of the, I also grew up in the eighties, so I totally understand what you're saying. Um, but what was it particularly about architecture as opposed to like a design program or, uh, engineering, something like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, at, at that point, even with the industrial technology program, I didn't really understand what it meant to be an architect or be an engineer. That was still a pretty abstract concept to me. I just knew that I, I wanted to make things, but um, not not necessarily uh, just things, but environments. Like can, the the built environment was the attraction. Um, bigger things, spaces, buildings, um, and you know, in high school, probably not until the very end of high school did it really solidify that the the kind of difference between engineering being math driven and uh, architecture being more sort of artful and design oriented. Uh, once I understood that differentiation, it was pretty clear what was going to be better for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went, I lived in Iowa, grew up in Iowa. So um, the, the state school happened to be one of the top architecture programs in the country. Um, and I didn't know it, but uh, at that time, uh, a good number of the faculty were also um, some of the uh, sort of architectural thinkers that were really moving the theory canon uh, at the time along. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I really didn't know what architecture was because architecture is so many things. When I entered into college, I thought I was going to you know, design houses and be that you know, kind of Brady image of what an architect is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was okay with that. But once I got there and was uh, exposed by these professors to a world of architecture that was totally wide open for uh, improvisation and, you know, coming up with your own idea of what it was, then then it really became super interesting um, and solidified. And college was... Um, during basically the internet happened when I was in school. So mm-hmm. you know, we went to school, I went to college, uh, I think maybe we had done some dial-up stuff at home, but by and large, I was first introduced to the internet with a telnet uh, prompt when I got mm-hmm. to school. Uh, everything was text-based and just the idea of what was happening, connecting to these computers all over the world and. Uh, exploring and figuring out what was, you know, in their hard drives, basically, um, just got super exciting. And I went, came back to school sophomore year, um, and it, the World Wide Web happened. With the web, mm-hmm. the first kind of graphic web browser, I was introduced to, um, and once it went from text to images, um, that that sucked me in completely. Uh, and so I that that really. I guess coupled with having a roommate that was in computer science and a couple friends that were also studying computer science, um, I kind of moved that part of my interest in education along simultaneous to architecture. You know, at that time, architecture wasn't involved with uh, the computer the way that certainly the way that it is now. But you know, I had professors in school who, uh, you know, scolded me for using a computer to make you know computer models in my buildings because that's mm-hmm. not what we do and. Nobody's ever gonna. That's never gonna replace a, a model you can pick up and turn around in your hand. And in many ways, it can't. But it does so many other things that you know they were too uh, uh, too old or too um, just you know inside of to to realize. Um, but I knew. Um, and yeah, so that again, the 
thinking about the built environment, being into computers. Um, these things are just happening simultaneous. And I, I knew that there was going to be uh, increasing convergence between those things over the coming years. I didn't really know what it was going to look like. But by the time I graduated from university, uh, I, I had um, my, it was my senior year, architecture is undergraduate is often a five-year program. Mm -hmm. In my fifth year, uh, I took a contract. Um, I had been working, I said, back a little bit. So I guess it was the second summer. Um, I didn't want to go home. I wanted to stay uh, on campus and be with my friends. Uh, and that was contingent on getting a job. And so I found a job at the university bookstore uh, they had advertised a uh, posting for a uh, computer graphic artist or something of that sort. And I had been you know, using Photoshop and, and things in my spare time and uh, knew that I could, I could use those tools and do that job. And so I went and interviewed and it turns out that they were actually looking for somebody to be the, the university's webmaster, um, and, uh, which is what, what they called the person that took, you know, to control the website um, at that time. And so I went in and they said, do you, do you think, you know, can you do that? Um, and I had, I had no idea how websites were made. Um, and I said, sure, uh, I can do that. And I walked out with a job. Uh, and I literally on my way out of the back office, grabbed the HTML 1.0 book off the shelf and took it home and figured out what I was going to be doing for the next uh, three months. And that ended up turning into a, a job that I carried that I while I was in school too. So mm -hmm. um, that that job and that position matured in those first couple of years as the web matured. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the time I left uh, the bookstore, um, I had developed a, a CGI Perl based um, shopping uh, interface to be able mm -hmm. to take orders. We weren't processing credit cards because that infrastructure wasn't in place to be able to do that yet. But um, we were actively selling things through the website. Um, you know, that was in the late early, late 90s. Um, so that experience, um, I ended up getting a contract uh, with a company uh, called uh, Boise Cascade uh, that does office products and various things. And they were developing a, a idea about having um, what that at that time would have been, I guess, still would be called an extranet, but a, a kind of uh, a purchasing relationship between a furniture company and them that was a web-based uh, experience. And so I built a prototype of that just as on the side while I was finishing my architecture degree. Um, and so that, that introduced me to the idea of really, you know, connecting databases to websites and having these uh, sort of more mature offerings. Uh, and that helped me to get, um, you know, I was a, a, a great fit for um, a guy in New York City who was uh, doing both architecture and web development in his uh, in his practice. And his name's Eric Lifton. I uh, runs a practice called Mesh Architectures. Um, mm -hmm. So I was there. Uh, that's that's what I did when I graduated and moved to New York City. Um, at, interestingly enough, I had been debating whether. 
um, I was going to go to film school um, mm -hmm. uh, for a master's degree uh, or go and be an architect. Um, and I was also debating between San Francisco and New York. And so I went to both cities. I interviewed, I met with schools and like tried to figure out what all the options were and then uh, discovered Eric and it was a great fit. So um, sealed the deal, moved to New York. And uh, at that time I was the only employee. So uh, my responsibilities were, you know, everything. Uh, and I learned super fast, just kind of trial by fire and learn on the job site, you know, almost everything that I uh, learned about how buildings go together. I learned from contractors from, you know, being on the job site and really not from school. Um, mm -hmm. School gave me uh, this incredible uh, foundation, uh, thinking, critical thinking, um, uh, you know, the kind of design thinking as it's often referred to today and, and how that can be applied not only to buildings, but, you know, really to anything. Um, and so that architecture training gives me this, uh, that's the real foundation for a multidisciplinary practice for me, mm -hmm. um, coupled then with the technology. So I, I worked in New York um, for a few years and we were developing uh, data-driven uh, websites and uh, interactive experiences. At that time, uh, the kind of transition from Macromedia Director to Flash is happening. And mm -hmm. so we were, um, you know, building uh, interactive Flash front ends onto databases um, for film uh, film festivals and uh, worked on the first uh, website for Robert De Niro's um, Tribeca Productions and the wow. film festival that they launched. And, um, you know, we were um, doing super interesting architecture work and interesting interactive work. Um, and this was really before Web 2.0 happens, mm -hmm. um, right, kind of on the cusp of that. Um, and uh, uh, I guess in 2002, uh, my wife and I started talking about um, moving back to be closer to home and uh, that that landed us in Chicago um, and that kind of started the, the next phase of things. Mm -hmm. So I can see kind of like, you know, um, when I was looking at your kind of your background, I can see kind of now the path to your master's in computer science with kind of an emphasis on game programming. So after, I mean, you know, there's probably like not quite a decade between your undergrad and your graduate program. Um, so was it just the desire to kind of further plumb that craft and to go deeper and to, to develop more mastery of computer science or? Yes, so um, when I landed in Chicago, um, my wife and I moved from New York, uh, you know, we had great jobs and kind of living the life and uh, made this decision, moved to Chicago without jobs and ended up finding um, uh, an interesting practice doing hospitality design um, mm -hmm. and that, that, you know, paid the bills for a little while. And um, when I left, uh, when I left Mesh and I left uh, New York, I had been working for a client and when I landed in Chicago, they reached out to me um, with uh, see if I'd be interested in working on another project for them. Um, and around the same time, uh, shortly before moving to New York, I had started to um, kind of formulate uh, ideas about you know multidisciplinary practice and was working with uh, some colleagues from Iowa State, uh, some who one who moved to New York, uh, and then 
he had also gone to school at, at Cornell. And so he had some connections to a couple of cool guys at Cornell. And we started working on some projects together, theoretical projects, competitions, and um, just as a kind of uh, side hustle or um, you know, a, a more experimental thing that we could do while we were, you know, some of them were still in school and some of them were working various jobs. And um, uh, that started to mature as we, um, you know, got uh, sort of better at working together and um, it, the experiences that we were having in our professional lives, at a certain point that became a practice and that was happening at the same time that we were contemplating this move and um, in some ways part of the, uh, uh, you know, me accepting the idea of leaving New York City was about, oh, if I leave and maybe this, you know, we could try and do this thing. Um, and with that first client, um, reaching out, it really was the kind of, we, we had a paying client, we had um, money to sort of do, start to do the practice. And that became uh, a practice known as Sandbox. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was uh, me and four other guys. And we were, um, as I said, we were kind of so all doing it as a side hustle. <clears throat> but then at a certain point, um, you know, that started to change and we had enough clients that that became uh, for some full-time jobs. Uh, I was fortunate enough to um, pretty quickly after I got to Chicago, th actually through connections from uh, Eric at Mesh, uh, met Martin Felsen here in Chicago, and uh, he was teaching a class at uh, the Illinois Institute of Technology that at that time was called Web Technologies, and um, I had uh, sort of hoped that maybe I'd work for Martin um, or somebody like him, and he uh, he said, "Hey, I'm teaching this class, and you're you're." sort of in some ways more qualified to be teaching it than I am and why don't you co-teach it with me and so the spring, so spring of 2003 I co-taught uh, this elective course called web technologies and in, in the architecture program at IIT and it was focused on you know all the kind of ideas that we were talking about at, at mesh um, kind of bringing the these two practices together and uh, so that that really became the, the big opportunity for me and for Sandbox in many ways, and for certainly for me with respect to Sandbox, is for many architecture uh, practitioners, uh, young practitioners, uh, the university is a, a, you know, a solid paycheck with good benefits. And mm -hmm. uh, in some programs like IIT, where there is an emphasis on practice and bringing real um, experience from practice into the classroom, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's what we do. Um, we don't so much uh, write papers and things in a kind of scholarly, scholarly way, the way that the science um, programs do. Uh, we practice and we publish on our practice. And so um, that was encouraged and Sandbox uh, really ran simultaneous to what became a full-time teaching um, gig at the, at the school, at the college. Um, and did that for, for many years. And, you know, the, I started teaching there when I was 26, I didn't have a master's degree. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in, in many ways, maybe not qualified by traditional standards to be a college professor. Um, but I had amassed this experience in the computation space, um, that didn't exist at that time. Um, and I had a practice with, you know, real clients doing real work. Um, and so that, that was really the, the platform for teaching and, um, the, 
university became this, uh, I learned, I learned more teaching, you know, probably than I ever taught, um, any, any kids, but Mm -hmm. it was a place to really, uh, develop that research platform and computation. But I got to a certain point where, uh, being self, you know, 100% self-taught at that point, I was trying to write uh, optimized C++ libraries to connect microcontrollers to game engines, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the like 2000, 2001. And I, you know, I, I didn't know, really know how to do it. I didn't know what I was doing. So um, I, 2000, this is like 2009, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, 2008, 2009, um, I just got to a point where, like, I, if I'm going to take this farther, I really need a real degree. And so uh, I reached out to uh, somebody at DePaul University here. I knew they had a game programming degree, an undergraduate degree. Um, and I was looking at the whole college of digital media and trying to piece together something that would be the equivalent of a master's degree in game programming. And I had like made this whole plan up and like said, tried to present it to the head of the school. And he's like, oh, well, we're gonna actually have our first cohort of the master's program this fall. So they were already, they were already doing that. Uh, and I, I joined that first year um, and at DePaul at that time, you know, a good number of the faculty were um, here in Chicago from the the game development um, epicenter that it was in the 80s with all of the arcade games. And, you know, there still were a number of big development um, places here. So the, the faculty were real veterans from the game industry. And um, as a result, they, the emphasis at the time of the program was very much on like building everything from scratch. So you know, we were writing uh, game engines and implementing physics and AI, um, you know, developing the systems, not just using the systems. And subsequently, I think there's been a shift towards things like Unity that expedite a lot of that. So it um, doesn't have that good foundation, but that's, that's really where I got my real computer science education. I had to complete the prerequisites of an undergraduate degree in computer science, you know, data structures and algorithms and computer systems, all that type of stuff before I was able to enter into that program. So um, I, I did that in through a number of sort of programs online and then entered into the, to the DePaul program. Um, and I thought actually interviewed after I finished that I would maybe go into the game development world. Um, I have a, a good friend who's a game developer and, um, you know, like spent a lot of time uh, trying to understand the business through him and uh, explored it a little bit. I ended up actually having a couple job offers and uh, simultaneous to what was happening at the university, a, a kind of big, uh, um, a new dean was coming in, so it's gonna be a big administrative shift. Uh, and in that shift, I was um, asked to, uh, uh, to put myself in the running for a um, directorship, a new directorship that was formed around. Um, they had taken the curriculum, basically uh, separated it into sort of five topical areas and were looking for directors in each of those areas. So um, I was faced with this question of, do I go into the software development world or do I you know, take this directorship? And um, at, at that time I had been um, sort of coming out of sandbox uh, which kind of started to, um, as the economy tanked, that's about the time that I went back to school and Sandbox started to um, 
the opportunities were fewer and far between and it just economically it didn't make sense so um the the uh i thought i was gonna maybe go into the software development world um but i had this idea in my back pocket about creating a, a kind of um, independent school, if you will, uh, that teaches people um, all of these things that we do in the digital fabrication space. So everything from, you know, physically making things, which we were doing in our practice and that's in the university, uh, to making computational things and then to using the technologies that connect those together, the microcontrollers and the electronics and uh, various software. Um, and, you know, I had this sense that there were people like those who, you know, probably know Pumping Station One here in Chicago, this is all bef really before Pumping Station One, you know, that, oh, if we made this place, the this kind of lab, people would maybe pay a subscription to come and use it. Um, I had been thinking about, we had been doing a bunch of work at Sandbox that we were actually building this stuff. Um, as often happens, if it's experimental, it's hard to find people to, to build it or to build it in a way that's affordable enough to actually have it for a client. So mm -hmm. we were building things ourselves and you know, the idea of having our own CNC machine um, was looking like something, at least to me, something that would be a really good opportunity. Um, but uh, there were concerns about, well, what happens when we don't have enough work to drive it and we don't want to become a fab, you know, pure fabrication studio. And so this idea, oh, well, we could teach people, you know, we could monetize this um, by teaching people um, and then we could have it for, you know, doing our projects and, and monetizing it that way as well. And there wasn't honestly a lot of interest in the practice at that time to do that. So I put it in my back pocket um, and uh, I had a, had a child uh, who became a kindergartner. Um, mm -hmm. And around this time that I'm uh, finishing my degree and uh, thinking about uh, becoming a software developer, or, you know, committing to academia. And uh, I, I guess she was kindergarten. She, there was a art project in the spring to raise money, a um, fundraiser. And so I volunteered to uh, work with 30 some uh, kindergartners to develop an art project. And uh, the idea was that we would make an exquisite corpse of the city. Uh, I took a a street grid and like cut it up into uh, 30 some sections and mm -hmm. uh, we were going to use Adobe Illustrator to draw on top of each of these pieces, um, each of these grid sections that each of the kindergartners were have. And so um, fired up uh, <laughs> uh, this software for these kids and it failed miserably. It was too much. You know, some of them were able to kind of get it and make some mm -hmm. shapes and do things. But so we had to kind of revert to plan B and they ended up um, drawing by hand and then we scanned them all in and then they used some some simpler software um, to, to color things in and we reprinted them, put them back together. And the whole process of uh, working in the school and working with these kids, um, the kind of light bulb went off that, hey, you know, there's no place in this school for these kids to do this kind of stuff. And there's nobody here that really can can teach it. And man, maybe we should make, maybe that that lab that we were gonna make for adults to come and, you know, subscribe to, maybe we should do something like that for kids. Uh, and that, that was the start of uh, Bitspace. The idea um, developed, a, had a 50 page business plan and, um, was trying to get a good friend of mine to start this company with me and uh, circumstances just didn't work out. So uh, 
put it in the back pocket and then had this opportunity to take this directorship. And so the thinking was, well, if I stay in academia, I can, I can do this and I can try and find the money to make this bit space idea happen, or maybe I can do it on my, just on my own, bootstrap it. Um, so over the course of a couple years, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, doing things with the, with the school and meeting people um, at uh, school events or birthday parties, um, my boss, uh, Eric in New York, told me something super insightful uh, many, many years ago. He said that your career doesn't really take off until you have kids. Uh, and you know the impetus being that they they connect you with all of these people that become clients and you know help your practice to grow, um, and that you know very very true for me. Um, at a birthday party, I think at a ice rink, um, I met uh, who the, the man who ended up becoming my uh, investor and partner in Bitspace, uh, who had a son in my daughter's class, um, and. You know, that started with a, a kind of casual conversation that led to a meeting, and then uh, six months later, we had you know a space and we're starting a business. Um, so that was about five years ago. Yeah. So 2014, you you founded Bitspace. I mean, this kind of I think continues kind of your arc of being at the zeitgeist and really kind of being involved with things just before they become you know out there <laughs> and out there in the in the air. And so. Yeah. So in 2014, you know, you founded Bitspace. So can you unpack a little bit just kind of what Bitspace does, what services you guys offer? Yeah. Because it's more than just, I mean, it's so much more than just a place for kids to go after school. That's right. I mean, it <laughs> is that, but it is so many other things. Yeah, and that's actually the smallest part of our business, um, mm -hmm. kids coming to Bitspace after school. Um, it, the whole point of Bitspace was um, I, I've been working with, uh, incoming freshmen in the architecture program. Uh, as the director of design communications, my uh, responsibility, the, the real focus of my responsibility was on the development of a four course sequence that all incoming undergraduate architecture students would take. And there was a, a sort of shortened um, sequence for graduate students um, that used the same classes. And so it was really like, okay, here's this opportunity to build this thing from scratch, four consecutive courses, what do they need? What are they, where do they need to be at the end? How do we prepare them to be like these next generation thinkers um, in the university? And what you know, we find is that uh, while our students that are coming into these programs are really smart kids, um, they know a lot of things what they don't have is the ability to operate with uh, open-ended problems and mm -hmm. to um, be able to sort of turn things upside down or think outside the box. And so there's a huge re, uh, like deprogramming and reprogramming that has to happen for, for these kids in order for them to be able to operate uh, with their minds and with their hands in the way that we want them to. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a it's really hard, and so um, I, you know, I'm doing this project with kindergartners, and I'm working on this big problem with these people who've just graduated high school, and I'm just thinking like, wow, there's so much that we could do to fix these kids. They should be coming into the program already ready to do these things. There's no reason why they can't be, mm -hmm. um, and you know that's. 
for me, that's the real mission of Bitspace is to make that possible to sort of bridge that gap in their education. And I'm not um, saying that to uh, be critical of the teachers because the the you know challenge that they have is immense. Um, and to mm-hmm. for us to think or expect that they should be able to bring that kind of disciplinary thinking into the classroom is you know that's unrealistic. So. Um, you know, how do we how do we augment that, sub, supplement that, um, and uh, you know, Bitspace Bitspace grows out of taking everything that we were doing in that program, uh, which went you know we were teaching uh, object oriented thinking uh, in day one. Uh, they were doing UML diagrams adjacent to um, architectural graphic drawings, um, mm-hmm. you know, thinking conceptually about compu- the relationship between computational thinking and traditional design. Even even though they didn't know it, they were uh, doing those things. And, and then it matured up to the point where we were teaching them, you know, how to develop for Oculus using C Sharp and Unity and connecting microcontrollers and data. And that was that was the, the real you know goal is to get them to the point where they can operate like that. Um, and we, uh, with Bitspace, really just took all of that and kind of took away the maybe more sophisticated terminology and things in, in the architecture world and stripped it down to something that could be um, uh, given to, to K through 12, basically. And uh, knew that it could be done, didn't exactly know how far, you know, exactly how successful it was gonna be, but um, we kind of made this charge for ourselves to only uh, use adult tools. So mm-hmm. that that's, another big distinguishing factor between us and other things that kind of were happening in the space at the time, you know, foam, foam blocks and various things that are, are kind of already in the classroom. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, so real programming languages, we weren't going to use scratch cause scratch and that kind of stuff was already happening in the schools, you know, mm-hmm. so we didn't need to do that. We wanted to, we wanted to, you know, take the kids that were into that stuff um, already um, and be able for to make it so that they could do anything that they wanted. Um, and Bitspace started that first year with summer camp. Um, we had uh, 12 weeks of summer camp. We had one program uh, and it was for kids uh, six and up. Most of our kids were on the lower end of that, that spectrum. Um, but we ran um, we ran a, a really successful summer camp with pretty good enrollment. We were um, on that kind of uh, initial small budget and just getting started. You know, we were uh, we were cash flow positive out of the out of the gate um, with that for summer camp, and so um, that that was clear that the idea was going to work and that we could in, you know invest um, more into it and grow it and. Uh, uh, hopefully, take it to somewhere somewhere really great. Um, so that that first summer, um, I guess we had uh, half a dozen employees, and you know we've grown up um, now to the point where we have um, you know twenty some employees and have a very diversified um, business doing 
still the business to consumer, but also business to business now with our relationships with schools and other organizations and um, trying to scale the business now uh, to be not just a, a kind of Chicago uh, brand, but to be a national or international brand. That's the, the pursuit now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of change and evolution over that time, but um, yeah, that was the original driver. So, I mean, I, I'm th- you and I kind of got into this in the same year, 2014. And so I'm just curious to like from your seat and from your perspective, kind of being all over the place with BitSpace and being in all these different schools, what do you see is, I mean, I feel like we're kind of entering this kind of Makerspace 2.0 where even the the term Makerspace might be fading away as being part of a time and some of the great things about that Makerspace kind of um, symbolized are becoming permanent in schools or at least normal normalized. Um, so where do you see this next phase, you know, kind of six years after the zeitgeist of Makerspaces in schools or at least the beginning of design thinking in Makerspaces? Where do you see it going, like, trend-wise? Um, I, I think, I, I guess where I hope it's going, um, it, I, think, I think you're right. I think um, in some cases, if you, I think if you look at the the average of what's happening out there, mm-hmm. um, you paint a sort of more uh, optimistic view of what's happening than than I do. So I think that's certainly where we're trying to get to, um, and I hope that we get to this point where uh, the 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 sort of support infrastructure provided by companies like Bitspace. Um, make it possible for all teachers to be able to tap into uh, thinking and doing processes like the ones that we um, champion uh, whenever they want, wherever they want, however they want, that they're able to really um, uh, have agency in the deployment of these things. And I think it's still a huge struggle, even for schools who have more or less absorbed um, this into the idea of it into their everyday that have um, maybe uh, uh, diversified or uh, distributed the resources that used to just be in the one room out through mm-hmm. and into classrooms throughout the school or you know multiple teachers uh, teaching it that aren't just the dedicated maker lab teacher. Um, that's certainly happening, but it's still it's still a struggle. Um, but I, I hope that the we get to this point where where they don't uh, they don't have to worry about the heavy lift um, mm-hmm. that's involved in making it effective part of the the classroom. So on the flip side, um, I mean, I think some people have observed that some schools are kind of. Tr- I guess, uh, transitioning away from the work that they were doing, like say through 2014 and kind of in the height of this and moving on to other programs. I mean, do you see that as kind of a, I mean, you kind of alluded to like some concerns you might have, um, as opposed to like the very positive view of this where it grows and becomes subsumed into the school culture. Do you see some schools kind of moving away from it as it's not the trendy hot topic in education that it once was? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see that because the, the, um, you know, the people that we're talking to are still, they're still in it. They're still uh, trying to, to champion it. Um, I'm, you know, we work with schools. Um, we've worked with schools in the past that I'm sure have uh, sort of tried it. They, maybe they got the lab. They, um, 
uh, ran the class, maybe it wasn't so successful, um, and there's there's a loss of interest. Um, that wouldn't surprise me in the least bit. It's um, sad because uh, I think it's still super important, and it's not. It shouldn't be viewed as a trend. Um, it I think um, to to do it and not do it right. Um, you know, obviously doesn't do it service. So, sure. um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. So, I, I mean, out of all the different like spaces you've been in, the spaces you guys have designed, I mean, you, you guys make furniture for these spaces, you do professional development, you do consulting, you do these after school camps and summer camps. What do you see as like in the successful programs in schools in particular, what do you see as like that one motive force or that one ingredient that makes these labs productive as opposed to the ones that, you know, there's not a single bit of dust or, you know, 3D printer filament that's that's spooled out. Um, I mean, the, the labs that look really pristine but are clearly not being used. So what is that yeah. What is it, that ingredient, do you think, or ingredients? Well, I, I think that that ingredient is, yeah, it's at the heart of the, the those failures, the ones that maybe have abandoned things. Um, but I think a lot of teachers need to feel a certain level of control and mastery over um, subject matter to be able to engage students with it. Um, so when you get into situations where uh, the students um, know more than the, uh, maybe technically more than the teacher does, mm -hmm. uh, that makes a lot of teachers uncomfortable. I mean, I can speak from experience early, early on um, teaching that I struggled with some of that too. Like, wow, you know, the, this kid's really smart, and he's challenging me as a as a teacher. Um, and you know, at first that became that was an uncomfortable feeling. But um, you know, I quickly recognized that uh, it that just means that I need to talk to this student in a different way, and that my you know my value to him as a teacher is not about being the master and in control of the situation, but about. Uh, posing the right questions and pointing in the right direction to really capitalize on the, the you know the smarts that they have, and that mo I don't honestly don't think that most teachers feel really comfortable in that space. And so I think um, the ones that have been really successful are the ones where they've found a way um, to uh, maintain uh, you know the safety and the you know, knowledge and comprehension of what's going on, um, but to let really let the students drive it and let it become what it wants to become. Um, it's really hard. Kids are pretty finicky. Um, and, you know, I, we thought it was going to be super easy to, you know, uh, have the right topics and we're going to come with all these classes and kids are just going to line up to all these classes. And the truth is that, that they're not, you know, they're they're into the things that they're into, and you got to mm -hmm. kind of find those things. And you know, if you if you make a program built around getting kids to make things that they don't want to make, then that's not going to work either. So I think that you really have to find a way to um, be as hands off as possible. I think that's the secret ingredient. So some of the same tenets of good progressive education apply to this. I mean, it's kind of like the answer Absolutely. to to any coursework or any content <laughs> yeah. area. Yeah. Um, so he, so here's a, something I wondered about as I'm like kind of looking at your work and, you know, hearing you talk about being a parent, assuming you have any free time, what do you make when, if you just have, time, <laughs> if, if you have this magical hour that doesn't exist, yeah. what do you, what do you do if bit space is closed and you're in there and you've got access to these machines? Um, yeah. what would you make? 
Well, so I I, I make um, <laughs> maybe one of my biggest faults is that I um, I, I can't. I don't have hobbies. Mm-hmm. I ski. That's a, that's a hobby. It's kind of more of an obsession in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than that, when it comes to my free time, I often am doing things that are related in some way to whatever I'm doing at work, um, mm-hmm. which maybe sounds a little bit sad, but it's those sort of more fun novel kind of edges uh, or leaves of things that um, I find super exciting and then end up becoming kind of some kind of an obsession and then oftentimes end up becoming another business or some other idea like that. So um, over the course of the past couple of years, um, my day-to-day involvement at Bitspace has gone from like being the, you know, being there all the time to not being there so much. And um, the, the, during that time, we had some uh, unfortunate uh, life events here. We had a, a fire in our house oh, wow. that led to a complete um, gut renovation of our house. So it's actually not finished. You can see a kind of temporary counter behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, so my my sort of side interests, the things that I've been making, have really been um, scaling up back up into architectural stuff, doing, did all the the millwork um, for the house and uh, a lot of the rough carpentry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, about, I guess it's probably been about six months, maybe more now, uh, finished um, a pretty interesting project for uh, a young couple. We uh, Design, uh, built um, a, uh, a van, well, converted a van, a sprinter van for them to live in, kind of hashtag van life, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a kind of puzzle of a cabinetry project inside of this small space. Um, but it turned out, turned out really great, interesting project. And um, I had you know, thought for a while that maybe uh, that would mature, that sort of uh, building, scaling out of building the furniture, the uh, digitally fabricated CNC produced furniture that we make for bid space, um, that growing um, for me into a kind of practice mm-hmm. that would be you know, focused on a kind of mobile uh, living, recreational living, tiny house, mobile house um, kind of idea. And that's still a, maybe a long-term passion for me and mm-hmm. it, it kind of in the back pocket or um, cooking on the uh, simmering on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, making I, I like to make physical things. Um, a lot of uh, kind of typical woodworking type stuff mm-hmm. um, connected with digital fabrication. Um, and then now I've uh, taken a new position and have a have a new nine to five. So I'm working as a uh, digital innovation strategist for a very large uh, architecture firm, Perkins and Will, mm-hmm. um, based here in Chicago, um, and and doing the software development and um, uh, kind of feeding that part of my brain that way. Sure. So something I've been curious about when I'm interviewing different people. So what books, podcasts, movies, poems, websites, articles have inspired you lately? You know, um, related to your work, but unrelated. Just just curious, like what's on your nightstand book wise? What's yeah. in your Netflix queue? Like what, what are you really inspired by these days? Yeah, gosh, I, I, I should know the title. Um, I've got this big encyclopedia uh, of a book on my nightstand right now that's a basically a, a kind of, 
encyclopedia of how to optimize your your body and your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been I've been doing a lot of running and trying to. Um, balance uh, a very full kind of uh, professional life with um, climbing and yoga and running and mm-hmm. uh, all in kind of preparation for the ski season. Uh, and so I'm, I'm interested in how to start to tune my body. For a long time, I, I really didn't think so much about the food that I ate or you know how I was keeping myself healthy, but uh, the last few years has um, mm-hmm. that's changed. And so I'm, I'm super interested in that. Not, not so much to the point of uh, like Kurt's file and mm-hmm. uh, you know live long enough to live forever, but just right. just some good uh, better habits and you know optimizing optimizing things. Uh, and then most of my time reading lately has been focused on uh, machine learning and uh, stuff that's that's happening in the AI space and the architecture, engineering, construction space. So do you see speaking of machine learning and AI, um, you know the whole idea of like assistive. AI in design, um, you know, I think a lot about, uh, you know, if somebody's got a website, a firm has a website, they're thinking about, okay, well, it's been two years, we need to refresh with this. And they have to, you know, pull in like the webmaster and the designers. And it's like usually a pretty painful process, yeah. unless they're updating expensive. the website. Yeah, <laughs> expensive. I mean, do you see a future where there's kind of an AI in the background that's slowly updating the branding, the design, the interaction. Is absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean that 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 kind of stuff is already happening. Um, you know, the 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 I'm working in a super interesting group uh, at Perkins and Will that uh, faces the the sort of business side more mm-hmm. um, so than the practice side. Uh, it's focused on uh, taking ideas and hopefully maturing them into products um, that can, you know, maybe become even their own businesses. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, they're even, even at a real rudimentary level doing things like uh, using AI to automate the, the processing of um, headshots. You know, you have mm-hmm. a company of thousands of people, the, you know, the, the task of doing that, that's a big task for somebody to go through and do all the Photoshop work to, to make that um, just right. And so to be able to apply machine learning to automate that process, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff is already happening. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of picture um, a dystopian kind of Skynet, you know, overlord <laughs> as the AI. But I mean, I don't think people realize how many tiny assistive things. Like, I would love yeah. in, in Adobe Illustrator if you know there was kind of an AI working alongside you know me, kind of like you know Clip or whatever the horrible Microsoft uh, yep. paperclip, yep. but actually effective and not as uh, cloying. Um, Absolutely. So that's kind of some of the things you guys are thinking about. Is yeah, I mean. <laughs> In a in a large organization, and really just with the state of the world today, having access to you know machine learning doesn't really become valuable until you really have large amounts of data and the right kind of data. Um, and so we're trying to um, yeah identify processes that can be connected to to make that happen. Um, and you know also the extended reality space and mm-hmm. kind of the, the whole gamut of uh, what's happening in new technologies blockchain and you know it's all kind of uh, trying to see what's happening at the edge and see how that can affect uh, digital transformation really um, at, a, at a kind of large scale in uh, the AEC space. 
So it's it's very exciting, and it, it it's it's by no means the like culmination of a career, but there's certainly a, a convergence now, or I've come full circle back to you know I'm an employee in an architecture firm, um, and I'm uh, I've been hired because of um, this broad um, experience set, you know, being a uh, taking bit space from. Um, nothing to, you know, being something, being a product, being successful. Um, that's valuable experience as a product owner, which um, is part of my job now, you know, in this new role. Um, the uh, finding the sort of uh, novel edges um, that could be turned into things that it, experimentation and exploration that uh, sandbox and uh, a lot of the work in the university was about, mm-hmm. you know, that's super important to what I do now. And um, being able to both, you know, create software uh, proof of concepts that work using, you know, real tools and real platforms, um, uh, but with the disciplinary knowledge of having practiced um, architecture kind of on the front lines that all of that just kind of converges into the into this new role, so it's pretty exciting. So to that end, and kind of thinking about things coming full circle, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of like directors of IT, directors of innovation, technology, and schools. There's a lot of pressure on them to kind of incorporate AI, uh, machine learning, blockchain into K through 12, which you know sounds kind of like a, <laughs> a huge task. Yeah. But, but do you see that in the future in this kind of new role and this new lens that you're looking at things through? Do you see those things kind of infiltrating K through 12 in a positive way down the road? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I I think um, it, everything just continues to get more and more accessible. None of the none of the things that we're talking about with machine learning right now are completely new concepts, right? They've been uh, around for a long time, and the the tools and the platforms have just matured to the point now where more and more people can access them, um, and so that that will. Uh, just continue to to trickle down into the schools. I, you know, at the end of the day, they the schools really just need to, um, uh, I think, find the value in the fundamentals of computational thinking, of design thinking, mm-hmm. um, of uh, having an an open mind and a and a way of looking at the world that um, you know allows you to see opportunities as opposed to problems and. Um, I think that that if they can do those things and they have the right support infrastructure, either mm-hmm. internally or through companies like Bitspace, that there should always be a, a kind of funnel for for that new, those new ways of thinking to be able to to come into the K through 12 space. And I feel like if we're not if we're not keeping them abreast of what's happening and you know what the potential is, then um, they're going to have to they're just going to be behind when they get to college. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Thomas, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure everyone else will also. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Depth and Life podcast. Special thanks to Thomas Kearns. If you have suggestions or show ideas, send us an email at info at depthandlight.com.